open uh, your Bibles to Matthew 3, verses 1 through 17. In your pew Bibles, that's on page 808. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Thank you, Melinda. Say one more word of prayer for us. Gracious God, with uh, scriptures open before us now, we pray that you would make this book live to us, that you would show us ourselves, that you would show us our sin, and that you would show us our Savior. Dear Lord, please make this book live to me. Amen. On Tuesday evening of this past week, there were about uh, 20 fellows who gathered together here in the lower level of our building for one of the times of men's fellowships. Uh, It was a fairly low-key event. We talked together rather informally. We ate some food together. And then one of the guys led a bit of a discussion by asking some group uh, questions to each other. Uh, Some of the questions were rather lighthearted, like if you were a professional wrestler, what would your walkout music be? Uh, That was pretty amusing for a little bit. Uh, Other questions were uh, a bit more serious. One of the questions was that if you could spend time with anyone in the Bible who wasn't Jesus, who would it be? Good question. Interesting answers. One fellow said that he'd like to spend time with uh, Jonathan, who was this crown prince of Israel, who, who set all of that aside for his friend David. What about you? If you could spend time with someone from the Bible who isn't Jesus, who would it be? 
I was desperately hoping that they wouldn't put me on the spot and ask me the question Tuesday night because I couldn't come up with a sufficient answer. Thankfully, no one looked at me. And then uh, on Thursday morning, I went, oh, I know the answer. I'd like to spend time with John the Baptist. Well, you go, that's cheating. It's because you spent time with him this week. Well, it's precisely because I spent time with him this week that I said this guy was uh, remarkable and he was a bit of an eccentric. Incentric, uh, eccentric, eccentric, there we go, in that he had clothing made of camel's hair, which is slightly strange. Eccentric in that he was a bit of a, a foodie. He liked to do the locust, dipped in honey sort of thing. He, he was an interesting fella. He was also, I think, one of those uh, tell-it-like-it-is kind of guys. Uh, we just had read to us that at one point he gets into this uh, sort of confrontation with some of the distinguished religious leaders of his day, and he says to them, who said you could come over here, you brood of vipers? And it wasn't like sort of an endearing introduction. He drew a line in the sand. He said, no, 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 we're not having anything to do with that. John the Baptist was a different sort of cat, which means that uh, he made some people uncomfortable. But for others, he was a breath of fresh air. Because his, his religious convictions, uh, they, were, they were obvious, they were authentic, and they were compelling. His main message for people was that we need to repent. Which means that we need to confess to God that by nature our lives are like uh, off course. Because we've turned away from him and we're, we're really quite consumed with ourselves. And John preached that if we're going to experience what you might call like a heartfelt spiritual life, we need to turn our lives back in the direction of God, who alone is able to make atonement for our sins to correct our off-courseness. In other words, to, to repent is like to, as we just sang, to turn from sin and self and to turn toward God in grace for life and joy and hope and peace. John was saying, hey, You've got to stop running uh, your own life and running from God because he's the one who made you. He's the one who holds your life in his hands. Without doing so, you, you'll never experience Christian salvation and, and, and joy. In other words, you, you'll never get the restart to life that you can have in the Lord Jesus. Repentance is this inescapable beginning. That was John's uh, main message that he preached and it's actually what drew loads of people to him because he just spoke straightforwardly from the scriptures and people recognized that his own life matched his teaching. And for reasons like that, John said, uh, Jesus said of John at another point, he said, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. How about that for a line on your gravestone? Jesus says, this man is great. And yet at the same time, there's this point in John's life where he has his own doubts as to whether Jesus is in fact the Christ. And that's the other reason why I'd like to spend time with John the Baptist for a couple of days. For the most part, he's clear, he's convictional, but at the same time, he has uh, his moments of uncertainty about the person of Jesus, just like you and I sometimes do. And as we prepare to, to journey along with Jesus through the pages of Matthew's gospel, John is very purposefully here right at the beginning to help us answer some of our questions. As we think about uh, journeying along with Jesus, uh, we, we want to make note of this fact, 
that we have uh, jumped forward in time some 25 years when we move from the last verse in chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 3. In chapter 2, Jesus is essentially a toddler, but in chapter 3, he is a grown man. And just before he goes uh, public in his ministry, our narrator turns our attention toward John the Baptist and shows us how he prepares the way for Jesus. He does this, first of all, by very interestingly portraying Elijah the prophet. That's my first point. John portrays Elijah the prophet. And then secondly, this morning, we'll hear how John prepares the way for Jesus by preaching about the kingdom. Next Sunday, we'll come back to this chapter. We'll see the significance of what John is doing as he baptized his fellow Jews and then eventually Jesus. But, but for now, let, let me unpack what I mean in saying that John portrays Elijah the prophet. And as he does so, he's preparing the way for Jesus' ministry. If you don't uh, know, uh, the bio on Elijah is this. He was this great man of God who lived centuries before John the Baptist did. Elijah spent his life uh, calling God's people to turn away from their waywardness and back toward God in faithfulness. Uh, from the perspective of God's people of old, uh, Elijah was like on par with Moses when it came to influential and revered people. He uh, addressed uh, corruption in his day. He miraculously raised a dead boy back from uh, the dead. He himself was a, a remarkable man of God. And many years after Elijah's death, God announced through this guy called Malachi, this Old Testament prophet, that one day there would be another Elijah type who would show up and call for God's people to stop rebelling against him and turn their hearts back toward him. I won't take the time to turn you there now, but the, the literal last two verses in the Old Testament, Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, probably like four pages to the left in your Bible, contain this promise that another Elijah type will come. So God announces this uh, to the prophet Malachi, and then for 400 years in the history of the Jewish people, uh, there isn't another peep from God to and through another prophet until one day, an angel of God shows up in the life of a guy called Zechariah. He, he says to him, you can uh, cross-reference this for yourself in Luke chapter 1. He, he says to him, hey, Elijah, or rather Zechariah, your wife is about to have a baby boy, and you're to call this boy John, because he will be a great and godly man. In fact, quote, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah. Which is to say, John the Baptist's life is the fulfillment of a prophecy made 400 years earlier through the prophet Malachi. He was going to be a great prophet like Elijah was, calling God's people back to him after this long season of silence. Not only that, but John also fulfills the words of the prophet Isaiah, which are being quoted in verse 3. He is this voice in the wilderness, the desert, saying, uh, get ready, people of God, for the Lord is about to walk onto the stage of history. So if you want a word picture, his life like uh, straddles the Old and the New Testaments. He, he has one foot in the Old and one foot in the New. He pulls it all together because, as I mentioned, there hadn't been a word from God for 400 years since uh, God spoke through Malachi. And then, 
after 400 years of silence, through John the Baptist, the flow of God's revelation starts again as the book of Matthew picks up precisely where Malachi left off. This isn't a perfect uh, comparison, but maybe it helps to think about it like this. Uh, John the Baptist was what Ahmad Crump is to the Cleveland Cavaliers. Ahmad is that on-court guy for the Cleveland uh, Cavaliers home games. When I go to a game, I love watching him. He's, he's the hype guy. He's got the energy. He's got the voice. He gets the crowd going for the Cavs to come out. And then what does he do? He slips off stage right because the show is not about him. Well, in a similar way, John the Baptist's life, his role was to prepare the way for Jesus for his ministry that was soon to begin. He's not the made show. He is simply a humble servant who points other people toward the Lord Jesus. And in that way, a simple point of application, he's an example uh, to you and to me. We're not the main show. We're pointers to someone greater than us. So number one, John prepared God's people for the arrival of the Messiah by portraying the prophet of Elijah. And he also, number two, preached about the significance of the Messiah's presence. That's my second little a byline about John the Baptist. John preaches about the kingdom. And we basically have his sermon in a sentence here for us in verse 2, where he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John preaches about the kingdom. Jim Boyce has made the observation that uh, John's sermon has three little parts in it. There's a warning, there's a promise, and then there's a demand. The, the warning really is, verse 2, the, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which I'll say more about in a minute. But, but first, uh, let me help us. It will be helped to, to know that this phrase here, the kingdom of heaven, it's, it's repeated lots of times in Matthew's gospel, as is a similar phrase in the New Testament, the kingdom of God. Kingdom probably makes us uh, think of a specific place, like uh, the, the United Kingdom, whose monarch is now King Charles III. We think of kingdom, we think of geography. While in the, uh, the Bible, the kingdom heaven isn't about geography, it's about activity. As kingdom describes God's reign over his people and his world. So in, in one sense, uh, the entire world is God's kingdom. He's the creator, he's the maker, he is uh, the sustainer of all that lives. But in a more uh, restricted way, that the kingdom of heaven or, or God is this place at which God rules in the lives of his redeemed people. Which is to say that the kingdom John preaches about isn't essentially political or geographical. It refers to God's exercising his royal authority in a new way through Jesus' ministry. And as we'll see in the pages to come, God's rule on earth becomes more visible when Jesus teaches and heals, when he restrains the evil one, as Jesus calls people to be his followers. Which is to say that for a man or a woman to enter into the kingdom of heaven, it isn't like to cross over a border. It's rather to embrace God's rule in and over your life. And to not do so will be to face God's judgment. 
That's the warning that's tucked into John's preaching. The, the coming of God's kingdom will bring with it blessing for all those who are within it, while those who remain opposed to God's rule will, will face a day of judgment. You see, friends, uh, you, you've got to make a choice. We're all compelled to take sides, either with or against the kingdom of heaven. And in this way, John's preaching has within a sobering warning for us. It also, secondly, has a word of promise. And that promise is, it's tucked into verse 11. As John says, He who is coming after me is mightier than, than I am. The, the mightier one than him being a reference to the Lord Jesus. In other words, John is saying that the king, the, the king of the kingdom of heaven is all but upon us. And the Lord, as the Lord Jesus is already alive on earth during the days of John's life. For now, Jesus is essentially standing off stage left, just out of sight. But next Sunday, we'll see him come and we'll see him take center stage. And then through him, God's reign in the hearts and lives of men and women will be asserted more powerfully on earth than it ever has been before preceding this. And, and this promise of God's kingdom uh, being here, being near, in some sense, already upon us, it, it means something very wonderful. It means that if you will enter into uh, the kingdom, life will change for you. For, for instance, you won't have to be stuck in your lostness and, and your aimlessness. The King, the Lord Jesus, will, he will bring you in and under his loving rule. He'll set your life on a new course. He can, he will, because as John just preached, he's, he's mighty. He's able to do what your self-help books can't do. He's able to do for you what you can't do for yourself. He's strong, he's mighty. And we'll also see in the chapters to come uh, that Jesus is, is, is strong, and he's also kind. He's strong and kind. If you're weak, you can go to him. He'll be your strength. If you're fearful and, and anxious, you can go to him. He'll be your protector and friend. He, he will be that to you and so much more. That's the promise tucked into John's preaching about the nearness of God's kingdom. But in order to get in upon the blessings of the kingdom, you must do as the king demands. You must repent. That's the third point that comes up in John's preaching about the kingdom, this demand for repentance. Repent is a very Bible-y sort of word. It involves a change of heart in the, the, the fundamental direction of your life. Those who, are, those who repent are confessing to God their sin of rebellion against him and their self-reliance upon themselves. So to repent to, to, is to say to God, I'm not the person that, that I should be. I have come up short over and over in loving and worshiping you in the way you deserve to be. It's to admit to God that you deserve his judgment but that you're pleading for mercy and wanting to live in a new way. In one sense, it's, it's, it's being sorry for the mess you've made of life, 
But, but it's more than that. As, as a little girl once said, repentance is being sorry enough to quit. Sorry enough to quit what you've been doing. You see, uh, repentance isn't about penance. It's a, it's a radical transformation of you as a person as you, like, turn the direction of your life toward God and you bow before him as your ruler, your savior, your king. So it's to turn your life over to God and to stop relying upon yourself. To take it a step further, it's to acknowledge that there's uh, nothing inherent in you that can uh, merit God's favor towards you. That's the point John was making when he gets into it with the Pharisees and the Sadducees in verses 7 through 10. That these guys were like the religious PhDs of their day. Some of them were good and godly, but for, for the most part, many of them were hypocritical. They were spiritually uh, proud and obnoxious. Many of them also believed that their Jewish heritage assured them that they were right before God. And John is warning them not to presume that their status before God was safe simply because they could trace their lineage back to Abraham. He, he's saying that even you, you must repent. You must uh, repent of even uh, in your confidence in your religious affiliations because to not do so will, will result in God's judgment. And, and John says, and this judgment is very near as he tells these leaders that, quote, the axe is ready to strike the root of the trees. Here's how John would say what he was saying to, to you and me in the 21st century. He's saying, uh, your family name won't save you. The fact that you may have gone to a Christian school won't be enough for you. Your mom's prayers for you won't deliver you from God's judgment. Being a good and moral person isn't enough. After all, the Pharisees and Sadducees uh, were known for their extensive studying and attentively keeping of God's law. They based their lives on the goal of working to attain acceptance and rightness before God. And John says to them, yeah, you look the part. You say and do the right things most of the time, but there's presumption and pride in your religion and in your piety. You must even repent of your religious affiliations. I thought of a fellow this week that I, I knew uh, when I was in college because we met together, we met each other when we both served as uh, camp counselors at this Christian camp in Michigan. Part of the application process and vetting process for the camp was to, understandably so, make sure that all of its uh, camp counselors were themselves Christian people since it was a Christian camp. And so you filled out these applications and then you'd have a conversation with someone where you shared how you'd uh, heard the gospel and believed it by faith for yourself. My fellow summer staff guy, Kyle, he filled out the application. He made his way through the interview, apparently writing and saying enough about saving faith to get him then into the two weeks of counselor training that happened before the campers came. And then his life changed radically during those two weeks of training. It started when he heard a guy giving a talk from Psalm 23 with a very simple point. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, I'm sure this, uh, Kyle had heard that sort of stuff before. This wonderful idea that Jesus is the, he's the true shepherd. He's the son of God who, who lays down his life to make atonement for the sins of his people. This announcement of good news that Jesus offers us a fresh start, that through his death and resurrection, we can be put right with God. Kyle knew about this 
and apparently could scribble enough of it out on a piece of paper to sort of pass along. But during those two weeks, during that talk, he realized that he had never actually believed the gospel by faith for himself. Up to that point, he'd, he'd been involved in a Christian church, a prominent denomination. But his, church, but his confidence, it turned out to be, was, was actually in himself, in the sort of Christian things that he did. Or, to use John the Baptist's words, he was rather presumptuous that God would accept him for being a decent sort of person. But all of that changed for him that week of counselor training when he confessed that he had never bowed his knee before God and made Jesus my Savior. That two-letter word was what was missing in Kyle's life. He had never actually made him my shepherd, my Savior. There's a difference between knowing about Christianity and actually becoming a Christian person. To become a Christian, you must turn from sin and self and by faith make Jesus my Savior. You do that by repenting. Repentance is the inescapable starting point to a heartfelt spiritual life. Again, I say it's not about doing penance. It's a radical transformation of you as a person to turn the direction of your life toward God and to bow before him as your ruler and savior and king. Or to put it uh, in the framework of John's sermon about the kingdom. Kingdom access is given to those who repent and bow before God. There's no other way in. You can't be born into the kingdom. You can't buy your way in. You can't bribe your way in. If you're a, like a, a decent, well-put-together person, John's sermon about the kingdom will really annoy you. It'll, it'll offend you. It, it'll tweak your pride. Because what he's saying means that God's acceptance of you can't, can't be earned. That you, yes, even you, aren't good enough. God only brings in those who, who know that you must bow down and admit your ungoodness, your unworthiness. Or alternatively, you hear John's sermon to you this morning, you go like, I certainly don't have my act together. Then his words will wash over you with hope. Because maybe you're on the other side of the spectrum. You're broken, you've been used by people, you're beat up, you're so tired of life then John's sermon will come to you and it'll lift your heart because it means that, that you haven't been disqualified. Yes, you, even you, can receive a fresh start in life for both the religious and the irreligious. The message is the same. The only way into the kingdom of God is to abandon all of your little efforts to run your, only, your, your little fiefdom of a life. It's to turn your life over to the royal rule of Jesus, trusting in him and his, and his message that he brings us from God. Friends, if, if you'll do this, God will not only change the direction of your life, he will also fill you with this deep and wonderful life-changing love. It's a paradox, because it's only through surrender that you really become free. But it's a wonderful paradox 
Because when God opens your eyes to see that your life is uh, instinctively headed in the wrong direction, he doesn't place upon you demands about how to make yourself better. He brings you good news about the Lord Jesus for you to hear and to believe by faith. Friends, the, the gospel is this proclamation that God connects to you, not on the basis of what you have done or even haven't done, but on the basis of what Jesus has done for you in history. Has your life been transformed by that good news? If not, will you repent? Will you enter into the kingdom today, like my friend Kyle did in the summer of 1996? You'll know that you have repented and believed that you have truly heard and understood the gospel because to use John's phrase in verse 8, your life will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What he's saying is that you'll increasingly uh, know that you've been changed by God because that you'll increasingly uh, turn your attention toward God and his purposes for your life. You'll find yourself going like, I, th I think I want to read the Bible today. Where did that come from? You suddenly say, I'm such a selfish person. I need to actually move toward other people in love out of consideration for them. And in doing so, you'll prove that you have become one of Jesus' disciples as you bear evidence in your life that you have entered into the kingdom of heaven. For to be in the kingdom is to bear likeness to the king himself. So you repent and believe to get into the kingdom. And let me also say in closing that you continue to repent and believe as you live in the kingdom, believing by faith that God's unmerited favor is his everyday gift to you. Believing by faith that God's unmerited, unearned favor is his everyday gift to you as a Christian, as one of his children. Friends, that's the good news that you keep believing. Because as you keep believing, it'll, it'll guard you from being presumptuous in your own apparent successes. As you keep believing that God's unmerited favors is everyday gift from you, it'll keep you from despairing in your inevitable failures. That's what makes life in the kingdom so humbling and so wonderful. You're in because someone else has opened up the way for you. And as you increasingly get it, it'll free you up to give your life away for Jesus and for his kingdom purposes. And in doing so, you will increasingly become the person that God has made you to be. And so we say quite simply to one another, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is still very much at hand.